Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, week ending Friday the 11th of November. We, Daniel Mon and Bobby, are on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on our podcast this week, we chatted to the legendary writer and comedian Sean McAuliffe about his new memoir, Tripping Over Myself, a memoir of life in comedy. And also, we found out what are the benefits of trusting a local when you're travelling. Kate Burridge spoke about taking one part of speech and turning it into another. And we discuss how to adult when dining with friends. In town from New York, we speak to Todd Flaherty, the writer, director and star of dark comedy Chrissy Judy, screening at Melbourne Queer Film Festival. And we go into the hazards of pocket dialing. Triple R. Sean McAuliffe is a writer, actor and comedian who for nearly 30 years has appeared on Australian screens in so- shows such as Full Frontal, Talking About Your Generation, Thank God You're Here, Sea Change, Welcher and Welcher, Mr and Mrs Murder, as well as hosting The Logies, Helming Newstopia, McAuliffe Tonight and the McAuliffe Program and Mad as Hell, which wrapped recently after an extraordinary 15 seasons. Now, the award-winning writer has turned the microscope on himself with his new book, Tripping Over Myself, a memoir of a life in comedy, and to tell us about it, the self-described giant baby joins us now. Sean, welcome to Breakfast. <laughs> I never call myself a giant baby. Never. That's a lie, it's, Daniel. It's you know book, it is. Yes. There's a company that I that represents me that's called Giant Baby. Yes. So company's Giant Baby. But I'm just. Uh, it's just a. It's a regular baby. I'm just a normal baby. <laughs> just a regular. I was once a baby. I've uh, I've moved on. Uh, it's so interesting in the book to hear that there are phases where comedically, at least, you weren't interested in news. And oh yeah, no, no. Well, I, I st- I'm, in a, I'm grateful the show's finished, so I don't have to <laughs> watch it anymore. I, I, I uh, no, I only ever watched it for work. Uh, I, you know, over time, over ten years, and then because we'd done a show before, it made as hell called Newstopia on SBS. Oh, I think probably too young to have seen it. It was on at ten. It's at ten past ten at night on uh, Wednesdays, so it was uh, not exactly prime time. But that was another three years. So thirteen years I've been watching. Mainly SBS news, to be honest with you, because that was my habit, noting every item, anything that was of vague interest. And then, of course, you pick up stuff. You see the cycles of news and you kind of meet the personalities and see through them and feel you know what they're thinking. And that's sort of interesting from a character perspective, from from a, a theatrical and dramatic thing. But as for politics, never interested in it. And still aren't. Wow. Did you have any favourite presenters that you would watch on SBS? Oh, the presenters were fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Janice Peterson was, she was with us when we started Newstopia and uh, uh, and Leland Chin and we just, we kind of fell in love with, uh, and Anton, we fell in love with the SBS presenters and uh, would ask them occasionally if they wanted to appear on Newstopia and Janice did, appeared in her pyjamas <laughs> dancing, willing to do anything, <laughs> Leland Chin, to, happy to... Decided to rewrite the script we'd given her. That was great. <laughs> Anton was on it. Uh, yeah, so they, yeah, so, you know, and my habit is to, as I said, to, to during Matters Hell, even though we're on the ABC, was to watch SBS. You uh, write in the book about your uh, tendency to say yes to things, I suppose. Does that explain? We're approaching, or well, we're at 20 years since you hosted the Midwinter Ball in Canberra, which is <laughs> quite a feat for someone with self avowed no interest in politics. Yeah, although I did that when I did that during a show called the McCullough Program. Again, you're too young to have seen it, but uh, and that had nothing to do with politics. I knew nothing of politics. I knew the prime minister was John Howard at the time, but that was about it. Yeah. And uh, got up there and kind of got away with it, really. I think because I didn't talk about politics. If I was asked now, I have been asked a few times to do it during Manus Hell, and I frankly didn't want to go and do it because I didn't want to meet them. Mm. Why not? Well, it would risk humanising them a bit. In fact, since the show's finished, I've met a few of them. In fact, a few of them sent video congratulations and goodbyes to us, which surprised me, particularly given who they were. We promised we wouldn't tell. I suppose I could say who who they were, but not what they said. But Mm. uh, uh, So Jackie Lambie, uh, Senator Jackie Lambie, are very kind, and we were very, very... Well, you know, not cruel, but we were kind of cavalier about her dignity, I suppose, on our program. And uh, she sent us a nice message. And Dan Tian, who we were terrible to, <laughs> sent us a lovely message. Uh, and that's what I didn't want. And, and also um, Michael McCormick, uh, former leader of the Nationals, sent us a nice message. So I, it, it just actually underlined why uh, it was right not to go there. Because as soon as I would meet them, if I met them and liked them, then I would I'd become just, cash for comment in a way. Like if they're writing I, you nice letters, would you feel pressure to be nice about them? No, I just feel pressured not to be mean. I'd probably <laughs> just leave them out. Yeah. You know? And I, I think it's better that they remain two-dimensional kind of 
of comical puppets for us because that's how they appear on the news and that's how they should remain. But of course, they're, they're, they're you know, full-blooded, rounded human beings mm. and they've dedicated their lives to public service and public office and they deserve our respect, for well, God's that's sake. Right. Well, how do you calibrate where you come from uh, from a satirical perspective, given that you, you might, you would, they're in the arena and there's something respectable about rolling your sleeves up and doing it and yet you know you hold them to a higher standard than yourself but oh, yet sure. you've been around long enough to know that maybe that's folly uh, no no I no I would expect them to be smarter than me and yeah. better able to run the country than me and more respectful of the polity and you know I'm while I'm not interested in politics I did become very interested in government yeah uh, mm -hmm. and the way it's run and uh, was we were regularly on a weekly basis appalled by how ineffective either the Labor were when they were in power or how wrong-headed uh, the other lot were uh, when they were in power. And so for nine years, which was the bulk of our time on mm. air, we were looking at a particular side of politics, uh, fumbling and bumbling their way through, uh, you know, trying to administer uh, this country. And so um, the jokes were just there, you know, the, 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 non the nonsense of it, the way they spoke, the ineffective policy, that sort of thing, that was kind of just laid out for us every week. Mm. I mean, it would have been nice to be on it even just the last two months. Mm. It's just astonishing, really. Do you think people try and pin you... Are people desperate to know which side you fall on in the political spectrum? Do people always try and pin you down? Well, there's an assumption, I suppose, with some... You know, people are like beating the ABC that just assume we're all on the left. Yeah. And we all sort of... There is, we're this cabal who meet every day <laughs> and have meetings about how we're going to undermine... Conservative Australia, but of course that doesn't happen at all. And I'm not even employed by the ABC. You know, of course there are, there, and if there are meetings, I haven't been invited. <laughs> uh, and also, I don't. I'm not, I shouldn't be held to any journalistic standard because I'm not a journalist. So almost though, right? This uh, what's that? Did you say you almost enrolled in journalism? No, I well, I did. It was on my list of things to do. I actually had uh, had three choices. We, you know, we had to pick three things in my matriculation year, my final year at school. And I thought, oh well, law. That sounds interesting. No real interest in it, but yeah, might do that. Um, journalism, yeah, put that down second. Hmm. Um, wildlife and park management was my third choice. <laughs> so, you know, if the wind blew another way, I may well be very happy uh, looking after, um, you know, I might be genuinely conservative and then I'll be working on conservation <laughs> issues inside of... Well, you do right that I can honestly say that if, I hadn't been, if it hadn't been for your wife, uh, you'd be Secretary of the UN today. Um, yes, I would have remained in the law and ascended the ladder. Of course, I would have, of course I would have ended up there. Either that, either that or, uh, or in, the, in the Hague. Be Chief Justice. On the right the, side, yeah. Yes. Uh, is there... What is... It's not in a cage. No, at the, on the bench. Is there uh, what is what's it like being married to a, a comedian like you? Do, is, has Leandra given any indication that she finds you particularly amusing? Or uh, I think it's a it's a hard audience. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm whenever we watch Mad as Hell together, we watch it every week because I just to make sure the ABC broadcast it. <laughs> that didn't uh, happen once, did it? Yeah, they, they well they broadcast, but it was an old one. Right, it was the previous weeks, and I remember just being so appalled. Anyway, so I, I often would watch uh, Leandra. Uh, because I've seen the show a few times, obviously I've put it together, so I'm kind of keen on watching her, which puts her, her under enormous pressure. Uh, I think I think she finds me reasonably amusing oh, in, the real, in the real world, but, yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't really need to watch me on TV. Yeah. Uh, what's this aversion to holidays? How come you don't like them? I don't like... I don't like getting there though. People say getting there is half the fun. It's it's no fun at all. I don't like travelling at all. If I could be transported, you know, the fly like to some <laughs> telepod somewhere, I probably would do that. Maybe a cruise ship is a good idea. Mm. Maybe that's a travelling hotel, isn't it? Uh, there are some downsides <laughs> that we are aware of. There's no of way history. to get off. Yeah. There's no way to get <laughs> yeah. off, and you know that's right. Once you uh, once you're infected with something, I, I think that's it for you. Really, you've got to stay <laughs> in the cabin. So no, there's no. I, I do like getting. Play. I, mean, I don't mind making documentaries. Mm. It seems to be all right. I don't seem to mind that. Why is that? I'm just an, uh, I need a camera on me. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> pretend well, to enjoy it. Well, there was a, there's a piece in the book where you are describing your relationship with your father. I think were you on camera? With, you had a long yeah. conversation, but there were yeah, cameras we did, there. We did. Who do you think you are? My <laughs> father is a refugee from uh, from Malta after the war. So quite a few, you know, quite a few Maltese came to Australia in the. I don't know, 46 to 56, you know, I think they all got paid paid uh, eight pounds or something like mm. that. So um, 10 pound palms and eight pound 10 pound, yeah, I think I'm getting mixed up with Twitter. It's eight dollars, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, 
So, yeah, he was on, on the ship and came over. But he would never talk about his wartime experiences as a child, you know, with the, the bombs raining down on his street and everything. So so when Who Do You Think You Are came along, with, I sat down and did talk, <laughs> talked to him for about 40 minutes on camera and I'm astonished. At, that's the longest I've ever spoken to him about anything. <laughs> Oh, that was good stuff too, you know. It was great. It was gold. So uh, whenever I talk to him, I just do, do need to set up a camera yeah. just to encourage both of us. What about uh, news habits now, or what? What now that because I imagine Mad as Hell would be so uh, demanding. Um, it is a bit all-consuming. Yeah, it yeah. ended up occupying seven days a week, which is one of the reasons I think I just got to tap. I had to tap out essentially. Uh, so yes, I, uh, I'm still in the habit of watching the news, but I don't feel the need to obviously write down and note everything. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I glide across it a bit. In fact, news comes to you these days. You don't really have to watch mm. the news. In fact, we found that by the time that you know we watched the news at the end of the day, that it had already come to us via social media anyway, and we kind of knew all the stories, and I'd listened to them all anyway. And that was a big change over the ten years yeah. to go chasing it year one, but then no, it just comes to you like a Um, I'm curious about the role of jealousy. You talk about when you were early stages of your career not being able to watch Steve Fizard, the comedy company, because there was a a jealous part of you that kind of wanted to be where they were. Do you still have any of that, even though you've had a lot of success since then? I'm okay now. No, yeah, that was an interesting thing. Was it jealousy or envy? I don't know. Envy seems slightly less. Seems nicer. Benign or something. (laughs) That's right. It was probably envy, I think. I I would, uh, especially if they were my age. I could watch any comedy at all from any era and love it and enjoy it. I'm very drawn to it anyway. But then it came to the point when people were about my age were doing it. Mm. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. Well, I held them to a higher standard. I know they were funny. I used to, like, Tony Martin was hilarious on The Late Show. He's now a good friend of mine. But Mm. I couldn't stand stand watching it, even though though you were very funny. Um, Yeah, I think I would just, I just. It just reminded me that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, I think. I'm not even sure I could articulate it in those terms back then. But mm. uh, yeah, my wife sort of saw me watching it and she said, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just, oh, really? Is it a viable way to earn a living? You know, I had all these sort of practical considerations to, uh, to process. But uh, in the end, it wasn't really about that. I just had to go and do it. So once I did it, it was fine. Everyone, everyone that I quite liked who was about my age became my friends and... Uh, and uh, I can uh, I can watch stuff. I don't tend to watch it while while making Mad as Hell, uh, just because I didn't want to absorb any anything by you know accident and end up repeating a joke. So I tend to stay away from comedy while we're making stuff, and then when when not, I'm quite happy to be an audience. Yeah. What about uh, the idea of memoirs? Do you have favourite comic memoirs that you read, or you didn't want to be oh. influenced, perhaps? Well, I did. No, I've uh, most of my uh, the books groaning on my bookshelves are uh, um, uh, autobiographies or biographies or memoirs, anyway, or about filmmaking or about comedy or about TV or whatever. Uh, and the good ones are the ones that uh, really put you in the moment in history. Uh, yeah, look, I, I quite enjoy I quite enjoy rereading. There's one about Peter Sellers called "The Life and Death of Peter Sellers." Um, it's a massive book, and like I was a big fan of Peter Sellers, and I've read that a few times, and also the one in Charlie Chaplin's autobiography, which he calls "My Autobiography." I do feel <laughs> that "my" is redundant. <laughs> Too late to write to him, obviously, and point that out. But he's anyway. got some ears you can contact. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll ring. Uh, I'll ring Una. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, yes, but I noticed, I did notice that about halfway through, not the Sellers one so much because it's not an autobiography, but certainly Chaplin's, and there's a number of other comedians to whom this happens. So once, once you hit the peak, once they've told you about their childhood, which in Chaplin's case is very Dickensian, you know, all the way up to here's my success and here's what happened, and oh, that's great. Halfway through, the rest of it are trips and holidays and meeting and name dropping. Mm. And I thought, well, I won't do that. I won't do that. Not that I've had a, a stellar career in the manner of Chaplin. <laughs> so the fa- I don't know, it's mock heroic. So the, uh, most of the stories are about failures, and there have been many of those. And I think, you know, if I was a kid growing up, mm. wanting to be a comedian, I would probably like to read about the failures as much as the things that whoever's writing it regards as successes. Yeah. How do you get back off the mat? Well, I know I'm very, I'm kind of arrogant. I think I just, I th- I've always thought even stuff that didn't land or failed or got axed or whatever, I always thought, oh, that was good. I would have enjoyed watching that. Yeah, there's nothing I'm ashamed of. No, at all. I mean, I'm, you know, for better or for worse, I just think it, that was fine. It just didn't work. And 
you kind of need to steel yourself when you're in this profession to go. So if you don't get the audition, it's probably not about you. It's probably the fact that you might have been too tall or you, you kind of look a bit like the other person in it. You know, you just it could be a million reasons that actually got nothing to do with what you offered. Nonetheless, Jeff Kennett pops up with a hideous burn. Oh, he does. Yes, that's right. Well, uh, I had a Tonight Show again. You're too young to have seen it. No, I had one of those chat shows. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, which ran for uh, 13 episodes, and then uh, was uh, was uh, was one of Kerry Packer's last actings, I think. After that. <laughs> I have that to comfort me. Anyway, so we went on a holiday afterwards and I came back and, uh, oh, that's all right. Uh, no one uh, no one noticed. No, I haven't spoken to anybody. I'm pulling my luggage off the carousel and there's Jeff Kennett next to me. He says, so, uh, you going to go back to the law? <laughs> Something I'd never considered. Terrific. Yeah. No wonder you don't like holidays as well. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Sean McAuliffe, Tripping Over Myself, a memoir of a life in comedy, is out now via Hardy Grant Books. And what a pleasure to have back in the Triple R studio, Sean McAuliffe. Well, thank you very much. And I was so pleased to see that the book wasn't in your giveaway uh, Bookshelf outside. I'll come back in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Have a look. Triple When I'm travelling, I like to put trust into locals, whether it be if I'm going on a tour guide um, or if I'm working in another place, whether it be country or state, um, you know, you trust the people that have lived there longer and they know the place kind of a thing. Uh, when I was living in Samoa, I, when I was finishing, I had a friend come and visit me um, and we did this tour that I had been told about by so many people. It was a waterfalls tour and it went for about four hours and you literally climb up this mountain and these waterfalls uh, and the guy that took the tour um, was a cricketer. So I had known him and he had said, like, you have to come on this tour, you have to. And And I left it to the last minute, but then I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to do it. And it was one of the most amazing... I've never been on a hike like this. Mm. Um, Also, so it was um, me, my friend, and then there were two other um, tourists that came on on the tour as well, and him. So there's no safety equipment or anything like that. He would just take us uh, through the mountains. And like I said, he would literally point to this waterfall. We would come out and see this waterfall. It's like, wow, that is stunning. And he'll be like, yeah, so I'll meet you up the top. I'm like, okay, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. What's it, what's happening here? And he's like, I'll show you. And we were just standing there. There's no way that we could do this. Anyway, we watched him climb up and he was up the top and he's waving. He's like, all right, now your turn. We're like, well, no, are you going to piggyback us on this? Uh, and then so he climbed down again and then he just like showed the first person. He's like, put your foot here, put your hand here. Um, and we did it. And it wasn't, it's kind of, we were to the side of the waterfall so we weren't completely underneath it. But there was water coming down um and once we did a couple like uh, after an hour I think at first it was quite daunting uh, and just some different places that we had to climb across but once we got into it it was like oh this is this is great and he has been doing this for years so we yeah we did the whole thing um it was amazing Mm. uh two years later they had to cancel doing the tour because he fell off a waterfall (gasps) badly injured himself Wow. Can't take the tours anymore and no one else can take it because no one would dare. No, and you did it. I did it. That's so good. It was amazing. And you literally, like, you wouldn't, you couldn't pack cameras, phones, anything. Uh, I mean, you you had to have a pack. You just had to have a waterproof pack. But he was literally like, if you don't worry about water, we can drink the water there um, and we'll have lunch prepared in a village at the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to carry anything because it's just going to, You'll either drop it, damage, or you just don't want to have to carry it. So one of those things as well, like we, I've got no photos of it, but I will never forget how beautiful it was. Um, but then when I heard that <laughs> he fell down, he's okay, but he mm. was badly injured and they couldn't do it anymore. I'm like, of course. Yeah. It was so dangerous. Yeah. I can't believe we did it. It's like when you see a lion tamer with like one arm that it like encourages <laughs> you to have a pet. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, um, no, thank you. I remember an- another time when I trusted locals, I was living in Fiji and I've spoken about this uh, a different situation. So there is a bus that goes from Nandi to Suva, which uh, takes four hours because it stops along the way plenty of times. And they say not to go on the minibus because it's dri- driven by locals and they just speed and it's quite dangerous, but it only takes two hours. So I took that a few times. <laughs> Oh, my God, talk about an adrenaline rush. Anyway, uh, there was another trip, though, when you're in Suva to go to uh, one of the 
it wasn't an island. It was just uh, on the coast, I guess. Uh, but you couldn't, there were no roads that would get you there, only local roads. Mm. Um, and there was a bus, but it was a local bus, uh, not, no tourist buses. You, the trip would take, if you took a tourist bus, it would go the long way around. It would take five hours. But if you took the local bus, it would take two hours. Mm. So we were like, let's just go on the local bus. Yeah. So I went on the local bus and it was raining and it was going around mountains and I just, I remember all the locals looking at me and my friend, like going, oh, your game, your kind never normally come on these buses. And we're just like, yeah, we're, we're up for it. Um, and to the point where it had to stop because it got so dangerous. It was because of the rain. If it, doesn't, if it didn't rain, we would have been okay. But because it was raining, we had to stop. We couldn't go any further. I honestly thought we were going to tip down and roll down a mountain. Uh, so people had to get off the bus and then we had to walk back. He had to try to reverse it, but he didn't want to do it with everyone in the bus. Uh, and anyway, we didn't get to our destination. We ended up going back to Suva and wasted about five hours. Oh, no. <laughs> because we couldn't get there. Oh, I'm, That's what you get for being adventurous. Right. <laughs> hey, but I, I think that was a more interesting and fun story, just knowing that I could have died but than sitting by a beach. I could sit by a beach any time. Yeah, that's right. Go down to St Kilda. Swim amongst that E. coli. I was going to say, yeah, get in the water there. (laughs) It is a risk, isn't it? But it's one that usually pays off. I think so. Well, if you live to tell the tale. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I've been at borders and, like, given away my passport. Oh, yeah. Really? And and it just felt like a terrible idea. And it's one of those things that you look back and you go, God, why wasn't I more scared? Mm. Like why Why did I – but then because it worked out, you don't really think about it. But then if you retell the story or you go over it, you go, that could have been really bad and I had no idea. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I was travelling in Turkey when I was by myself when I was in my early 20s and um, got an eight-hour bus from one destination to another and uh, woke up because, you know, obviously had been sleeping. It was a night bus, woke up, pitch black, some little rest stop. And I was like, this is not where I was meant to be. <laughs> Mm. And it had just um, – and I'd booked it through a local – I think I'd booked it through like a local travel agent in Istanbul or whatever. And I w- woke up and the, the he'd booked me on the wrong bus or whatever it was. And so I'd woken up at, you know, midnight in some Turkish town uh, having travelled eight hours to get there and it was the wrong place. Wow. And I was by myself and this is in, you know, 2010 or something. Um, and so – had no smartphone or anything and I just had like a little 3310 and was just, but I just remember being completely I was quite calm yeah and I think it's just because I was like I wasn't I didn't feel threatened or anything yeah but I was like oh well I'll just find a new bus and then I, I can't I, the worst part is I can hardly even remember how the situation got remedied but it was just this thing where I was like oh well I'm here now and then like there were a bunch of buses lined up and I just went and found one I said are you going to I don't know, Cappadocia or wherever I was headed and got on it and then it all worked out in the end and the guy I'd booked it through was so mortified and apologetic that when I got back to Istanbul, he let me stay in his apartment. Oh, my God. <laughs> this sounds even worse. <laughs> he, he vacated it and said, okay. take my apartment for the weekend at no cost. I'm so, I'm so sorry. So then I had this apartment in the middle of Istanbul. I was like, this is all wonderful. I don't know what the <laughs> I thought that story was going to get so much worse. Uh, yeah. And we're in love. Uh, <laughs> the listener went down a silver mine tour in Bolivia and then while they're down there, they started just taking out the dynamite. It's like, oh, we'll just move the sticks of dynamite. But <laughs> oh. lives to tell the tale. But, it, yeah, yeah, and, I, you know, I remember, I don't know, 3 a.m. walking along streets of New York getting followed. Mm-hmm. And I just stopped and turned around and offered them a cigarette. Oh, great. Isn't it yeah. funny when you do that? And it worked. Yeah. Mm. I used to carry – I've never been a smoker, but when I lived in France, I carried a lighter because it was such a good way to interact with people. Oh, really? Yeah, because it'd be like, do you have a lighter? And I was like, in fact, I do. Bonjour. But yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. A lighter, ironically, defusing situation. Yeah. I said that the dynamite was, was set off. Oh, right. Anyway, that sounds so interesting. So yeah, you go on a, a mine tour and they start blowing it up. You'd think they would pause it for the tourists. <laughs> We're just going to do no explosions today. We've got tourists in here. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I think the biggest one that I had was when I was living in Fiji and we got I was there as an Aussie volunteer and we got notified by DFAT that there was going to be a military coup. Uh, and so we were like, okay. And they're like, so pack your bags. Just be ready in case you need to get out of Suva, out of the capital mm-hmm. city. Uh, and I remember talking to my co-workers at Cricket Fiji, and they're just like, ah, 
we'll be fine. There's no coup happening. I was like, okay. Uh, and I spoke to my Aussie mates and they're like, yeah, my workplaces have said the same. I think the Australian government are just like freaking out for no reason. <laughs> We're just like, yeah. Anyway, that day we got messages saying, pack your bag, take it to work because I think today's the day that we're going to get you out of the city. I said it to my boss and he's like, no, don't be ridiculous. We've got under 15 trials today. You're umpiring. I was like, okay. (laughs) The under 15s, Bobby, more important. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I went there and then I went to take my phone with me as I was umpiring. He's like, what are you doing with that? I was like, well, what if I get a call? He goes, give me your phone. I'll answer your calls. I'm like, (sighs) (laughs) so I went out uh, anyway and then they had to stop the game and he's just like, come off. He's like, you got to get out of here. I'm getting calls nonstop, so I thought I better answer. <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, I got on the bus and I, he's just like, we'll see you tomorrow. Like, it's just so overblown. Mm. And I remember these little boys and they're just like, oh, see ya, we'll see you tomorrow. I was just like, I'll see you tomorrow. Never saw them again. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> we got evacuated. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know of another person who was in a country where there was a coup and they had no idea what that was. And they said, okay, what do I wear? <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Turning our mind to language this Monday, we're joined once again by linguist at Monash University, Kate Burridge. Morning, Kate. Good morning. What are we talking today? <laughs> verbing. We're verbing. <laughs> we're verbing, that's right. We're vibing on verbing. Well, I think this was your idea, actually. It's it was a very good idea, too. <laughs> Mon's idea. Thank you. <laughs> So is there a technical term for verbing? Uh, There's a a broader term for taking one part of speech and turning it into another. So that's conversion. Okay. Or if you want a fancy term, zero derivation. So basically you're not adding anything to the word. You're just simply taking the adjective and turning it into a noun or you're taking a verb and turning it into a noun. Basically English has this handy flexibility that means you can take... Yeah, any part of speech, yeah. basically. Mm. Are there controversial verbings and non-controversial verbings? Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, actually, I was just reading recently a, a wonderful book called um, Language of the Loaded Weapon by one of my linguistic heroes from the 1980s. That's uh, Dwight Bollinger. And he says, what was it? The, um, uh, familiar jargon is our is the what it was now I say I'm not going to get it right now <laughs> familiar jargon is the alcohol of our verbal drug culture and unfamiliar jargon it's marijuana so basically if it's new we hate it um, but you know it takes a while for it to to, to come you know yeah into our so what are some examples that come to mind well, a, a verbing particularly um, where you take a noun or you can take anything and turn it into a verb uh, it's, it's, I should add, it's because we've lost all of this grammatical stuff that we used to put onto nouns and verbs and adjectives uh, to indicate all sorts of information about who is doing what and to whom, etc. I think we've talked about this before. Um, but when you shed all that, you can simply take a noun and turn it into a verb. So uh, recently... Uh, in fact, it comes up all the time. Every time sporting heroes do something good, you know, they podium and they medal. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are howls about this, and maybe because it's just not used enough. Um, but we've been podiuming since the 1940s and I think meddling since the 1860s or something. But mm-hmm. it's still it's still controversial. I had an email from someone who wanted to put her foot through the telly and throw the radio <laughs> out the window when she heard it. So people get very upset, particularly I don't understand why... Turning something into a verb is particularly distressing for people. I mean, Shakespeare, we always mm. trot out Shakespeare, can't you, to, to make something sound reasonable. But, you know, he was great at taking it. You know, grace me no grace, uncle me no uncle. I've been proverbed by a grandsire phrase, you know. He's, he, he loved it mm. um, to, to play on this, to take something. And, of course, it, when, it's, when it's new, and I, one student told me she works um, – uh, as a as a waiter, and she was uh, has table twelve been beveraged? You know that sounded oh, wow. cool. I thought, oh gee, that's weird. But you know you'll get used to mm. say it over and over again. Do they start as a bit of a joke and then just get sort of welcomed in? S- sometimes, yeah. or just it's just being flexible. I think it's yeah. just handy. You know, I remember when. Uh, well, I don't remember because I wasn't around. But <laughs> about eighty years ago, um, when the verb to contact first appeared, and it was described as a lubricious barbarism, uh, people <laughs> hated it. The verb to contact it was considered pretentious. Like rather than make contact with someone. Exactly. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which so it's handy. Yeah. You know, rather than make it. contact or you know touch base. We're busy. Or, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> don't have to contact. <laughs> and you kind of look. You think, really? What's wrong with the contact? It's quite quite reasonable, but it's been around a while. People get annoyed about. I've I've heard um, gifting. Oh, gifting, yes, so yeah. to yeah. gift something, something rather than yes. to give a yes. gift to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. 
I like it. Mm. It's very clear what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is, and, and it fills a, a need. And you yeah. know, usually they survive these these conversions. Yeah, well, podium, podiuming is interesting. I mean, what's the alternative? Like someone places, perhaps places. I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or stands on the podium. Or yeah, wins. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, or, yeah, wins, wins bronze. <laughs> That's right. And and does this happen in the uh, corporate sphere? Yeah, that could be it too. Um, I think people associate it with corporate speak, and therefore it gets up their nose, and it, it can do. Um, but often it's you know think of one you know, thanks for the feels or the big reveal on uh, on these home renovation shows. They're all taking verbs and turning them into nouns. Or ah, oh, big re- I hadn't mm, thought of that. Mm, of course, yeah. There's some feedback learnings. Learnings, yes. Yeah, so that's taking that's um, turning well learning, which is normally a mass. Normally, I should. Yeah, is usually a mass noun and then turning it into something that can take a plural marker. Yeah, and that gets up a lot of people's noses. You would have the right to be a pedant about this, but you seem not to be a purist. Like, does this not, does any of it ever bother you? No, not no. really. No, well, uh, yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> I have a particular loathing for going forward and uh, certain aspects of corporate speak, but um, I think, yeah. But, yeah, they're all interesting. It's all evolution of language in a way. Yes, I don't like weasel speak. I don't like um, language that, uh, you know, is deliberately befuddling and trying to lead us by the nose, you know, I think. And and I don't, yeah, pretentious jargon, if it could be said more, I'm into plain English, I have Mm. to say. Uh, So if it can't be said in plain English, then it's probably Mm. not worth saying. It's my feeling, but <laughs> but yeah, I shouldn't go there because we're not supposed to have these feelings. Um, I'm supposed to find them all all endearing, you know. What, ab- what about your students? Are they good at adulting or not? <laughs> yes, right. I tell you what's most controversial though is when um, a brand name becomes a verb. Okay. Like you know, hoovering and electroluxing is was well, I don't know. Do, you, do we still do that now with these brand names? Hoover. Well, and Google is the only one I think. Of. Google is mm. one that yeah, and that I mean that was. That's a double whammy, really, because it's been verbed um, mm. and it's also um, been what's described as commonized. <laughs> Obviously, Google doesn't like being commonized, uh, but that's when it loses its capital letter and enters the language as a household word. So people use the verb to Google to mm. simply mean to search the internet now. Uh, and they fought it uh, and they won, I think, from memory. I think if you have a look, well, it's. Dictionaries are in this funny position because they will often have, you know, it's a brand name and they'll keep the capital letter, whereas the rest of us are, you know, cheerfully writing esky with a little e, uh, uh. and it's, you know, forgetting it's actually a brand name. Yeah, it's something I've never quite understood. I, uh, lawyers would see it, I guess, as brand weakening, or um, but I would think it's the sign of ultimate success. I don't know because it's you so would think so common. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. What about someone's uh, Georgina, who is a fellow linguist in crime, has texted and said, "What about versing?" Oh yes, um, which I think would be about sport as well, right? To verse yeah. versus someone, and that's another one that really gets up a lot of people's yeah. noses. Mm. But and I, that's a different process again. The most usual way we have of creating new words is to add a, an ending mm. to it, and that's why conversion simply taking a verb and turning it into a noun or vice versa is interesting because you don't need an ending or a prefix. Or, um, But then there's another method, which versus is, where you take away an ending or what you believe to be an ending. In the case of versus, V-E-R-S-U-S, it sounds, you know, versus is to versus, curses is to the verb to curse. So people are playing on that pattern and they take away what they think is an ending and they create the verb to verse. And again, Shakespeare was great at this. You know, he created the verb to grovel from groveling, which was misanalyzing that word uh, because it was actually growth plus ling, (laughs) and he analyzed it as grovel plus ing and took away what, you know, what looked like an ing ending and created the verb to grovel. I'm sure others did it too, not just Shakespeare, but he made it famous. I wonder to what degree uh, William Shakespeare is invoked against his will. Like, well, Shakespeare did it. Yeah, it's it gotta be fine. Yeah. Whereas he'd be like, podiuming? Are you serious? <laughs> yes, right. I'm sure he had his pet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another listener that asks uh, is asking you to weigh in on actioning. Mm. Oh yes, yes, that's another one, isn't it? Just mm. Taking yeah a, a noun and turning it into a verb. It's it's really interesting because even you know um, going back hundreds of years, people objected to them. I mean, Shakespeare did do it, but um, the great dictionary makers of the 
1700s, early 1700s, Nathan Bailey. He often used asterisks and obelisks on uh, on nouns that had been verbed. And uh, mm. Samuel Johnson, who wrote, you know, probably what we think of as the first kind of proper dictionary of English, 1755. He hated the verb, for example, to colour, because mm. um, that was from a noun. But, you know, again, they seem quite ordinary. Um, yeah. Can you pinpoint uh, the when it rubs people up the wrong way, what do you suspect that is? Is, there, is it, Does it go deeper than just change? Is it is there something sometimes infantilising about adulting and feels and all of that sort of stuff? That I think it's it's the, the underpinning of the social factors. It's you associate that with that certain group or it may be corporate jargon. It may be, you know, a lot of people's hated Americanisms are in fact not American at all. You know, they, they, they might be just new, they might be just slang, they might be associated with youth speak or something, but, you know, poor old American English gets blamed for a lot of things. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's right. It's 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 whatever you – it's it's not your gang, so you're going to hate it. Mm. Um, so the best thing to do is to get out of bed every morning and just simply say to beverage or <laughs> to podium beverage. or to breakfast. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> There is, while we have you, there is another pennant who's got in line and asks how we feel about dropping the D on words. For example, mincemeat, striped shirt, oh, etc. Oh, yes, yes. Or ice cream was iced cream once. Again, right. you know, once it's been in the language for a while, you don't even think of it as uh, an iced cream sounds really odd. But ice mm. cream's been in the language since the 1600s, I think. So. Um, yeah, oh, no, yeah. And so sometimes you get the the um, where it lingers longer in something like when it gets aged, when you get that really you emphasise the ed ending. But yeah, that d often drops. Is it just? Does it come about just as a matter of brevity? Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, okay. well, yeah. So if if it's a frequent word, we tend to take shortcuts, and things will then mm. shorten. And and the ending, those endings are often prone to dropping off anyway. Mm. This kind of erosion from the right. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, Dr. Kate Burge, let's do this again and thank you for breakfasting with us this morning. (laughs) It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Triple R. Going to a friend's place for dinner tonight. Um, Last time... One of the previous times that we they invited us around for dinner, they had both been working late, so they're like, oh, we're just going to go to a restaurant instead, which was fine. And so we just met halfway. Um, they ordered big, just ordered anything and everything, and then they paid for it. Oh. Said, no, 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 well, we said we were, we were going to take you out. And Abby was like, oh, no. And I said, yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was very nice. I was very appreciative. Um, but also. But also, well, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to pay for it. No, um, it, it was lovely. But we're going over there for dinner uh, tonight. If you're going to someone's place for dinner, would you um, – we're bringing dessert. Would, would you yep. bring anything or even just a, a, like a bottle of wine or something or – no, they're providing, you just go. No, you bring something. Well, yeah. I like to bring something. Mm. What would you bring? Well, you, you say, can I bring a dessert? And then they'll say – Yes, because sometimes they've had, they've got it covered. That's true. So if yes. they say no, 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 we've got it covered, then you bring then you bring wine or beer or whatever you're drinking, yeah. and you know, or, yeah. Sometimes you bring a bunch of flowers. Flowers, I, mm. not for you. Well, as in like if they're like, please don't bring anything, and like they've got everything covered. Yeah, you're like well something nice. Mm. But yeah, always bring always bring maybe a bottle of wine. I mm. bring at least a bottle of wine and usually a second one. Yeah, because mm. for you know. Because I drink it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, well, yeah, for, no, not that I'd have two, although maybe. But, yeah, one for me, one for you. Bringing – I mean, this is, happened recently. People – someone brought beers. They were they brought around their travellers. Ah. Oh, really? Yeah, like they walked in with beer like that they were drinking. Already drinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then – so, look – and even if you don't drink, I think bring a bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah just yeah. bringing something. Um, I've got a couple of mates that don't cook and they just admittedly don't cook, but they wanted to have us around for dinner. They're like, you know, you have us all the time. We want to have you over, but we don't cook, but we want to hang out at home. But they, do they cook for themselves? Uh, occasionally, but they eat out. They, they just have a lot of... Takeaway? Yeah, or like pre-made food. So just, oh. just easy stuff. They, they're not ones to, yeah, to cook. Uh, but they said that. So they're like, you can come over um, and we're just going to order. So when you get here, we'll order. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, of course. And they're just like, we're not going to put ourselves through the stress of trying to make something. And we were like, that's fine. Yeah, know your limit. I love that yeah. you're just owning it. That's, yeah, no, that's totally fine. What about when you go around for dinner and they're not cooking? Do they pay for the takeaway? 
Oh. Yeah, well, these guys did. I, I remember when I was younger um, and a friend inviting us around for dinner and in the end they were just like, oh, didn't have time, so we'll just order pizzas and then we split the bill. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, <laughs> maybe I'm always a tight ass like that. I've <laughs> never, expecting... whenever I've gone to, I've never expected the person to pay for takeaway whose house it's at. If they've invited you for dinner... And you're expecting them to cook? Well, I think maybe maybe I've just never gone under the impression that they're cooking. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe it's like, come around, we'll get pizza. Yeah. So I I'm mean, like, if that's okay. the case, then yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I've never uh, thought of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, nowadays, of course, I would absolutely, oh, no, I was very much like, yes, you should, no. Anyway, I'm, I'm trying to say <laughs> that I would offer, but I, I still am. If you're inviting me around for dinner, oh, well, if you're not going to cook it, you'll pay for it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Look, I, I'm with Bobby. I'm a bit more strident than Bobby's <laughs> fence-setting and backpedalling. Uh, but, yeah, I think as a rule, if especially if the invitation was to come around for dinner, yeah. if it's not like come around and we'll order Pete and whatever. Now I'm yes. doing what Bobby's doing. See? Yes. So, you're, so this seems to rest on if the plans are altered. So if it's like come around to my house for dinner, then you're like, oh, I'm being treated. And then you get there and they go, oh, I'm so flat out. I'm going to get mm. takeaway or whatever. That's okay. So if it's not, so if it's, but if it's prearranged. That you're you coming around for pizza and you're splitting? Yeah. Okay. I suppose. Do you have to know ahead of time that you'll be splitting the cost? But why would I bring two bottles of wine exactly. and pay for dinner? Yeah. No, I think, <laughs> I think I've been in situations where sometimes where it's like if you. I don't, I don't, I'm gonna. I'm gonna start taking notice mm. of this. Yes. No, I like that. I don't take notice. Well, but yeah, that's nice. Maybe of if you. you bring one, in, it's like, oh no, don't worry about it. You got the one. It's like Doesn't okay, this stuff I'll... just come out in the wash. I don't know. I just think depends who your mates are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe that's um, it. I've got. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, one of my mates, a uh, good friend. She doesn't like to cook. She'll cook occasionally, but normally when we go out, she will. will go out for dinner. Um, anyway, she married a chef. And she invited us around for dinner. We're like, oh, yeah. And then we got there and she was cooking. No. Was like, oh, no. It was like, oh, what's for dinner? She's like, well, I've whipped up a little stir fry. I was like, sorry, you? Where's, uh, where's your husband? <laughs> She's like, oh, he's working a little bit late, but he'll, he'll be here for dinner. He's just coming a bit later. I'm like, right. He's at his job, cooking. Cooking. Mm, very nice food. But you know what? Whenever I catch up with her, she always goes on about, oh, he's such a good cook. Now I come home and I've got a chef cooking for me. It's like, Is and he? Then, he's like, well, I wouldn't know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so when she invited us around for dinner, like, absolutely we'll come around for dinner. I can't wait yeah. to eat this delicious meal prepared by your husband who you continuously go on about how wonderful a cook he is. And do you think he gets home and goes, oh, this slop? Yeah, I wonder. Surely <laughs> he's judging it. Yeah. Or maybe he's helping her. Maybe she's improving. Yeah. <laughs> then you don't know that. But in a few years, mm, maybe. she'll know how to make it. Sounds, it looks, sounds to me like he's just keeping his mouth shut. Yeah. And also he's like, I've been cooking all day. I don't want to. Yeah. Um, I think some of the worst, I have a friend who was some of the really terrible etiquette, loved having people over. Like just found it. It's, it is nice going to someone's house rather yeah. than going out, you know. Mm. But she would consistently for, for years, and I think only just now has kind of stopped doing it, where you'd get there and she either wouldn't have started preparing anything or has just started when you get there. So you get there at seven and you're like, if you haven't started cooking yet. But then always, and I think she thought it was like a cute kind of, you know, the big chill sort of moment, let's all jump in and, and help. Oh, and she would rec- she recruits her guests to do everything for her to the point where I've lost count of the number of occasions where I've gone to her house, and I stopped offering because she always says yes. Yeah, I stopped offering to help. But I was one night where I cooked the entire literally. I'm not I'm not exaggerating the entire meal. Really? Like I got there and she would be like, I was like, oh, do you want? Because I because I'd be hungry and I was like, let's mm. let's move this along. Yeah. Do you want some help? And she's like, oh, actually, yeah. And be like, can you chop that onion? And then I'd see her, and she's like reading the reading the because she'd also use those um, meal kits where you cook from right. a box. They send you the stuff. Yeah. So that's what she'd give to her guests anyway. And she would <laughs> be reading. Oh, okay, so one one tablespoon of oil. We'll get a tablespoon, measure it, oh, and put it in the pan. And I just was sitting there, being like, I can't, I can't do this. But it was years. <laughs> oh my God. And I remember it was then like, and then it was really? Will who said like, at one point he was like, I'm not, I, like I love her. 
I'm not going to her house again. Like we have to go out or she can come to us. And then whenever she would come over, I would make a point of being like, no, 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 sit down. You're the guest. I've got it covered, you know. Um, and wouldn't ask her to help or anything and she wouldn't because I said no. Yes. She never picked up on any cues. Never. Oh, it's what the sort worst of invitation thing. is this? I just I think she thought it was cute. I'm a hot mess. Not cute. Watch me adult. So, <laughs> oh. She said that we would not be friends. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Todd Flaherty is an actor, screenwriter and filmmaker whose films and off-Broadway theatre works are lauded for their focus on multicultural queer stories. Todd's first feature, Chrissy Judy, asks, what do you do when your chosen family chooses someone else? It screens as part of Melbourne Queer Film Festival, which kicks off tonight. And to tell us about it, the writer and actor joins us now. Todd, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's our deep and abiding pleasure. <laughs> um, uh, can you bring us up to speed, won't you, in, on into Judy's world? Of course, yeah. So Chrissy Judy is about, uh, we're calling it a, a platonic romance about a friendship breakup. So um, it's about our character Judy, whose best friend Chrissy um, decides that it's time to move on. They are drag performers in New York City, and Chrissy decides that uh, it's time to start a new life in Philadelphia, which for all of you down under is about two hours south of uh, New York City, um, to start a new life with a new romance. And it's Judy's journey to figure out who he is without his best friend. And so it's a, yeah, it's a love letter to, you know, our queer chosen families, their importance to us in our growth as queer people. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, how we can discover ourselves, uh, without that codependent relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Is Judy a hot mess? <laughs> oh, Judy's a beautiful mess, yeah. Um, <laughs> Judy's the type of person who, uh, you know, always has, is always looking for, you know, where the bar is. Um, yeah, I think Judy is just trying to figure out uh, the best life that he can possibly lead as a queer artist. Um, it's very hard to live as a queer artist, make queer art for queer people. Um, and I think Judy's trying to hold on to that as long as he can without, um, you know, giving up and getting that corporate job. Mm. Um, and yes, of course, substances help to uh, get us through the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's it? What's the scene like in New York? How's New York going? Uh, New York right now is, um, it's, it's really coming back to life, um, especially, you know, these, uh, you know, the art scene is really coming back. Um, it's a very exciting time to be back in New York. Um, it feels like there's a lot of opportunity for growth and to do new things and to do present new work. Um, we premiered uh, uh, the film in New York City at the New Fest, uh, which is the uh, large queer festival there. Um, and we were almost sold out with, I think, a 500-seat house. It was just great to see that many people there again. I think people are just really excited to get back out, support the arts, um, and, you know, get, get you know, have some fun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. How how autobiographical is this film? People always ask if it's autobiographical, and I hesitate to say that it is, but I did start writing it when I moved to Philadelphia from New York <laughs> uh, in 2018 to pursue a romance. Um, so I, I'm a little bit Chrissy, I'm a little bit Judy, and I think we all have those two people in us. Um, uh, you know, Chrissy is someone who um, has been really hitting the pavement for a decade or so trying to make a life as a queer artist and has been, you know, fairly successful, but not enough to pay the bills and um, wants to find romance and wants to find love and wants to have some stability. And I think that that's something that I was struggling with when I, um, you know, was writing it. I wanted those things, but I also wanted to hold on to my identity as a queer performer. And, um, and I was, you know, struggling with this idea of leaving um, my life that I had built for myself in New York. Um, and so that's it, it. I'm sort of both characters, I guess, in a way. But um, and I've had these really substantial queer friendships that have experienced rifts with uh, the you know introduction of someone else's romance. Mm. Um, but no, no I, I can't say that I am Judy or that I am Chrissy. Um, it's you know just maybe inspired by inspired by. They than say based write on. what you know, and <laughs> I know queer friendships. So. <laughs> Four years in the making. Four years in the making. Yeah, we. Um, I started writing in 2018, um, and we had a whole other production um, crew involved in 2019 in the fall, and we were set for a 2020 uh, start date in the summer. We had like 150000 for our budget, and the pandemic hit, and our main investors pulled out. And so we were tr- you know, scrambling, trying to figure out how to make this movie happen. And um, 
So I lost my producer, I lost my DP and all these people who were involved for quite some time. And um, my brother who works on Saturday Night Live uh, is a cinematographer. And um, we took that summer in 2020. I moved to Provincetown, which is um, uh, which is where the third act of the film takes place. It's this queer enclave um, in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And um, we did a short film up there that summer in 2020. And in the fall, he was like, let's just do Chrissy Judy. We can do it. We can figure it out. So we actually shot it with just $20,000 over the course of mm-hmm. 16 days in uh, June of 2021. So it's been a long time in the making. And truthfully, like, you know, I, I wasn't sure what type of audience we would have. I was hopeful that we would get into one or two festivals in the U.S. And so it's been really remarkable, the reception that we've gotten. And I think it just goes to show that, you know, it's at the at the core, it's a story of friendship and everyone can relate to that. And um, it's taken us around the world. It's brought us here. So we're, we're just, we're so grateful to be here. Mm. I'm happy that people are responding. Tell us about it. the relationship with your brother, Brendan. So cinematographer, yes. you guys work a lot together? Or? So this is our, um, I mean, you know, we grew up making stuff together yeah. and uh, it just, it's a natural ebb and flow. Um, people keep asking, you know, how did you make a movie with $20,000 with a three person crew? Um, his wife was our uh, sound mixer on set. <laughs> um, very COVID friendly. It was a family affair. Um, but no, it was, uh, you know, people always say, how did you do it? And really, I was able to do it because um, because of my brother and because we have such a shorthand. Um, and, you know, anyone who's made films before knows it's it's a it's a struggle. There's a lot of hands involved in creating the final product. And um, it was easy to move things very quickly with him because we didn't have to spend too much time talking about setups. And, you know, it was uh, it's like we kind of read each other's minds. So, um, yeah, we were able to get some great shots that were not, you know, on our shot list because we were like, oh, get that, grab this, you know. Mm. Um, Yeah. There's lots of exploration of collaboration Mm. and creativity uh, and I'm wondering about – and networking as well Mm. and marketing. (laughs) Do you sidle up to – do you go to the SNL after parties and say, hey? Oh, gosh, no. Um, I've actually only been invited to SNL's uh, – a screening once uh, it's impossible to get tickets it's actually notably the hardest show to get tickets mm. for in New York City and even though my brother has been working on the show for I think eight, seven or eight years now um, he's only been able to get me a ticket once Wow! so I'm shaming him um, <laughs> <laughs> around the world uh, yes but um, uh, but he he does the networking and he's oh, much that's better great. at it than I am yeah, yeah. Uh, but can you walk us through the the black and white sensibility yeah absolutely um, so the film shot in black and white um, which I knew I wanted to do once I started writing. Um, I think there's just something inherently romantic about black and white films that I wanted to juxtapose with a story of friendship. Um, and then also, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film yet, you know, we don't really use many modern devices. So there's a cell phone and a couple shots. But other than that, you know, there's no talk of pop culture or politics. And so I was hoping that someone could watch this 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and not really know when it takes place. Um, we screened at Outfest in Los Angeles, and this older gentleman came up to me afterwards who was in his 70s, and he said, oh, my God, I felt like I was watching my story and my friends from the 60s. I had this experience, and um, and so, you know, I, I hope that the black and white lends to that sort of timeless element of the story. Yeah. Uh, it's the, at one point, uh, Judy's described as delusional. Uh, <laughs> working in the arts, how do you know or do, does, do people have a handle in New York City when they're delusional or just perseverant? It's 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 a very fine line. Um, I sometimes wake up and question whether or not I'm delusional, but um, I suppose that delusion has brought me here. So, you know, you, <laughs> I, think okay. I think you have to have a certain amount of self-confidence um, to wake up every day and say, okay, I'm going to keep working at this thing that no one is opening any doors for me to walk through. Um, but uh, I think then you also have to have the self-awareness to say, I think I'm driving people around me crazy by, um, <laughs> you know, pursuing this too hard. So it's a fine line. Um, but uh, I think I've learned how to walk it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about the uh, ambition for a film like this obviously you've got to travel the world and it's you know such a beautiful story but i and i I don't want to bring this up but it's Mm -hmm. been in the discourse that that this bros film Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering how you relate to the public reaction to it or what it's been it's so interesting i i saw bros i loved it um i love billy eichner i think he's a genius comedian and i think um 
we're just a very critical culture. Um, and, and, you know, the thing that's really hard about film is that it's all about box office. And we just live in a different time now where people really aren't going out to see movies as much. So I think that there was a lot of talk with bros about, you know, whether a queer film can make money at the box office, whether there's an audience for it. Um, I think our movie is proving that it can. Um, our movie is a little different because it's not a rom-com um, and it's, uh, it is a dark comedy. So it falls into a genre that um, maybe another, you know, group of people will be seeking out. Um, but uh, I, I think in terms of bros, like I, I think it was perfect for what it was. And, and um, you know, we're, we're a culture that watches things streaming now. So I think... Um, I hope that our film, we will have a limited theatrical release in the US uh, in the spring. Our hope is to land on a streamer. My hope is just that as many people can see it as possible. I think um, I've gotten tons of emails saying like, thank you for making this. This is my story too. And so I think visibility is really important. And I'm sure that, um, well, bros just had a lot more, <laughs> uh, had had a, a much larger budget to make back. So their their measure of success is far different than yeah. our little $20,000 film. <laughs> uh, where can we catch Chrissy Judy? So Chrissy Judy is playing at the Melbourne Queer, Queer Film Festival. Um, we are screening tomorrow night, the 11th, at Acme. Uh, we're screening on the 17th at the Victoria Pride Center on the rooftop. And then we're screening on the 19th at 4 p.m. at the Village Jam Factory, which I learned is, has nothing to do with jam. <laughs> <spread>. <laughs> no. uh, it's terribly exciting. And it is. Uh, I want to ask just briefly about the chemistry with you, mm. co-star. Yes. How, how well known to each other are you? So uh, Wyatt Fenner is a genius actor, and we were so lucky to have him come on board. Um, so many wonderful things came about him being there. Um, Wyatt and I met doing a reading of a play. Uh, it was like a, you know, I think we spent three days together, but we really hit it off. And um, there were a couple people in the mix who we were looking at for this part, and um, it was very serendipitous. I was living in Provincetown. He was vacationing there, and I was doing a final reading of the script before we went into casting and production, and um, he sat down and you know, read the part beautifully. And I was like, well, this is a no brainer. We don't even have to hire a casting director. <laughs> and um, Our chemistry was just very natural. And uh, it feels like there's a lot of years between us, even though there aren't. And it's, it's a testament to his acting. Uh, really, he's, he's so phenomenal. Beautiful. Well, uh, to catch what we've been putting down, we're talking Chrissy Judy, which screens as part of Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Head to mqff.com.au. We've been speaking with filmmaker, actor, screenwriter, star of Chrissy Judy, Todd Flaherty. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having us. Triple R. Yesterday, yesterday I received a few messages. Uh, I have like a family group message. So it's my two brothers and my dad. And it popped up with three memes. Uh, and it was it was the exact same thing, but it said, uh, "Good morning, have a happy sunny Saturday morning." That was yesterday. Oh, it was on Monday, right? Um, and I saw it, and I was just like, "Oh, Dad's just accidentally sent something." Uh, and then my one of my brothers is responding saying, "What year is it, Dad?" <laughs> <laughs> Dad said, "2022?" Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. My brother said, "Okay," and it's also Monday. Just so you know, uh, and I thought it was funny, and I'm sure my brother thought it was funny, and my dad got really offended. Uh-huh. Dad goes, "Why are you asking me this?" It was because of those emojis. I didn't send those, and we're, then we all went, "Oh, maybe he's been hacked." Mm. And then Pete's like, "Are you sure? Maybe you've been hacked anyway." Kind of went back and forth, and then Pete took. He's like, "No," he goes, "It popped up on mine as well." He goes, "But it wasn't me." Pete goes, "Okay," took a screenshot, sent it, and said, "See there? How it says sent from Dad." Anyway, my dad was when my dad. I, and I haven't seen him like this for a very long time, but, like, when he is right about something, he's uh. very adamant about it and he'll get offended if he's questioned. Wow. <laughs> Did he come back? <laughs> he was so offended. And then he came back and said, oh, ha, ha, ha didn't realise I pocket did that or whatever. And then we all laughed. It was like, okay, so you haven't been hacked. But he was adamant. Wait. And he was offended. He it just it must said have... Saturday he there was a written message? No, no, no. It was a meme and it was a meme smiley face with, with happy hands. <laughs> happy Saturday. Good morning. Like, okay, Dad, get off your phone. Uh, so it was an accident, but he was adamant that he did not mm. do it, right? Uh, had a big old laugh afterwards. Uh, and it did remind me of when we were younger when... 
dad was wrong about something. No, no. And then when you found out that he was wrong, silence. Mm. If, if I'm wrong, I mean, which happens quite a lot, I will own it. Just like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, and, and I'll kind of laugh about it and I'll because I think I do that a bit with Abby. I might be adamant about something. Not adamant in a, in a no. Mm. Like, oh, I don't think so. And I'll kind of laugh that, of course I'm right. But then when I realise I'm wrong, I think it's even funnier. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And it's good just to, to own it. I did, I did trivia last night at the pub. Oh, yes. Um, and one of the questions was what, what land animal has the longest tail? It's not, not a reptile. Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. Iguana. Not a reptile. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. What land animal? Okay. So is it not? I don't know why. But what animal has the longest tail? I'm not trying to hide it. This is the snake. No, not a reptile. Oh. <laughs> so glad you went on my trivia. <laughs> also, a snake is just a tail with a face. Kangaroo. That's why kangaroo. I it was okay. Right. So, I said, I said, kangaroo, and um, and some other people on the team, including Will, my partner, said giraffe, and I was like, no, think about how long a kangaroo's tail is because it's got the. Oh my god! Imagine looking at a giraffe and thinking that you know the long thing about this, (laughs) the tail. So I said, and I thought that I said, no, you think it's long because everything else is long, but a kangaroo, it's deceptive. It goes on the ground to with kangaroo. It was kangaroo. It was giraffe. Giraffe. Oh, that, yeah. oh my god! Really? So I, yeah, and I, I lost us a point, and it was. But again, you just have to go. And I was just like, oh. I'm, I'm so deeply sorry. Oh, you did apologise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> so guilt. But being adamant, I was like, absolutely not. You're so silly. Oh. Why do they need a long tail? They should have a fluffy little, like a pom pom on just above their anus. It's just to get, it's just to get the flies away from their bum. I think that's it. Oh yes. Anyway, so I had to. You have to cop. You have to admit it. Yeah. Oh, I have yeah, to cop yeah. it now. I was laughing at the idea that I it was know. a giraffe, yeah. which is what you're doing. Damn it! <laughs> and then bloody Will got it right. Now you've roped me into the eating crow. <laughs> Uh, I'm still laughing at the reptile, not a reptile. <laughs> My God, <laughs> seriously. Reptile, reptile. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Oh, well done. <laughs> uh, um, you, another time that I, I pocket dialed, I was actually in the process of proposing to Abby and I was oh. on the beach and I was trying to get the ring out of my handbag and I was shuffling around and I'm like, good out and it was hot and it was just horrible and then Abby she's like what are you doing and I went what and she showed me her phone and it had that I was calling her she's like you're calling me I'm like oh I'm sorry I'm just I'm I'm and then I hung it up and she's like are you okay I'm like no let's just go back to the house so my initial proposing (gasps) on the beach went out the window was ruined by a pocket call it was ruined by everything there were too many people on the beach there was a pocket dial there was um it, it was just too hot and we, none of us wanted to be there. Mm. So we left, we aborted. But that was that was a humiliating pocket dial. I reckon being ba- separately, bailing is great. Oh, yeah. Like the fact that you weren't stubbornly committed. And then you would have done some, oh, you would have been like super stressed. Yeah. And she would have been on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good you just, yeah, pulled the pin. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, spoke to my mother yesterday on the phone and uh, – you know, I was settling in for a chat mm. because the, the only time I tend to contact her or we contact each other is through pocket dialing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, I suppose I better let you go. I'm like... Oh, uh, the wrap-up. I'm oh. being wrapped up. Yeah, by my mother. By my, my mother. <laughs> like, you must be busy. Well, actually... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know where to be. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> that would be, yeah... My mother doesn't want to talk to me. Dad will often start calls with, this isn't a pocket call, because so often he does. Oh. He said, hi, no, I intended for this to happen. (laughs) This isn't a pocket call. So then he goes, oh, okay, great. Not Mm. that he never calls, but he's quite fond of a butt dial. These days, if I want to talk to somebody, I'll call, and then I practically know that it's going to go to voicemail. So Mm. I just hang up and call again, so that they see the frequent, the effort. Yeah, that's good. Mm. I remember before I had a car that connected the phone to bluetooth um when i was like 19 i it happened a couple of times where i i think both times was my mum thankfully and she kind of pretended it wasn't a thing i'd accidentally called her thinking i was in the car alone singing at the top of my lungs yeah <laughs> really she was just like she's like i got this weird call it was like it was kind of like radio and someone was 
I don't even know if she called it singing. <laughs> you were screaming. I wasn't yeah. sure what was happening to you. Um, so I'm so grateful now that it's all hooked up and can't happen because then because that's that was that was just nightmarish. Mm. I make it a principle one, I, once I've realised that I'm at the other end of someone who's called me mistakenly. I just hang up instantly. Yeah, same. I'm not a voyeur about it. Oh, oh, you don't. No, you don't stand the line for pocket call. Well, some people would stand the line because you. It's like being the CIA getting you know <laughs> yeah, little yeah. intel tapped. Yeah, it's like <laughs> getting your phone tapped. I one of my best mates does it all the time. The only time she calls me is when it's a pocket dial, and then like I'll see a miss call, and then it'll be, always be followed up by a. Sorry, pocket mm. dial. But she, I think she went through a phase of doing it like once a week, and because we were living together as well, so I guess we were on top of our call list mm. or messages. Um, but I, and she was having a conversation with someone at a cafe. And so I was screaming out her name because she had just done it so many times. I'm like, get off the phone. <laughs> You've called Bobby. <laughs> Until she's like, can you hear something? Wow. Is Bobby here? <laughs> In your pocket. And, and I was, I'm like, I'm here. Anyway, I hung up and, yeah, and then I just sent her a message. She had no idea, absolutely oh. no idea. But I don't do it anymore. I just, mm. as, as soon as I get it, hang it up. Yeah, it was a mm. good instinct to do the community service. I mean, I had a phone that was calling people all the time mm. in the middle of the night. Oh, oh. Like, sleeping on you were sleeping it? on your phone? No, it was like just had a mind of its own. Right. And so that became my reputation. Oh, that's what you told people. Oh, <laughs> no, that two AM call you got. That message that said, "Hey, you, you up. up?" No, it was my butt. I promise. Exactly. My butt said, "I love you." <laughs> I turned into Bobby's dad. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I don't want me. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website.